The 39th Annual New Hampshire Farm, Forest, and Garden Expo, New Hampshire's Greatest Winter Fair, will be held on Friday, February 4th from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. and Saturday, February 5th, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Doubletree Hotel, downtown Manchester. Just $10 per person. Ages 12 and under are free. Tickets are available online now. Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. Today's episode focuses on gardening and landscaping for birds, featuring an inspiring conversation with UNH Extension State Wildlife Specialist Matt Tarr. But before we launch into that, I want to thank everybody who took our podcast survey. One person who took that survey was randomly selected to receive a pair of Felco hand pruners, and that person is Lisa from Meredith. Congratulations. I'll email to coordinate getting you those pruners, Lisa. I also want to plug a few programs coming up. First is an annual event we're always thrilled to be a part of called the Farm, Forest, and Garden Expo. This year's event will be at the Doubletree Hotel in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire on February 4th and 5th and will feature a trade show filled with exhibitors, free educational workshops, demonstrations, farm animals, and a new garden and landscaping club competition and display area. So save those dates, February 4th and 5th, and I hope I'll see you there. I also want to plug a few upcoming webinars we're offering. On January 24th, a session on hydroponics at home, and then two webinars we haven't actually announced yet, but I want to let you know about. On February 7th, we're offering a webinar on season extension for home vegetable gardeners, and on March 7th, we'll wrap up our winter webinar series with a session on propagating trees and shrubs in the winter months. Look in the show notes for information on all these programs. Now, let's jump into a conversation about gardening for birds with Matt Tarr. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension. First, I'm happy to be joined, as always, by UNH Extension horticulturist and field specialist Emma Erler. Howdy, y'all. And we're joined today by Matt Tarr, our colleague at UNH Extension. Hey guys, it's great to join you today. So let me give you uh, a brief introduction to Matt. So he's a professional wildlife biologist and New Hampshire licensed forester and works throughout New Hampshire in close partnership with New Hampshire Fish and Game to assist landowners and communities to improve habitat for wildlife. His specialties include improving forested wildlife habitat through commercial timber harvesting, field management to benefit vertebrate and invertebrate wildlife, shrubland and young forest habitat management, wildlife food plot design and maintenance, wetland wildlife ecology and management, and methods for improving hunting opportunities on private land, Matt and his students are currently studying the factors that influence habitat selection and dispersal of shrubland-dependent songbirds and how non-native shrubs influence habitat quality for declining songbird species. So I hope it's obvious why we have Matt on the podcast today. Uh, what I'd like to actually start, Matt, and 
really just asking, what is your general philosophy around gardening for wildlife? Yeah, great. Thanks, Nate. I've actually heard you read that bio a couple times in the past 24 hours, and I think I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated because it's fun watching, listening to you read that. So, <laughs> please, yeah, the more complicated, the better. <laughs> so, I I work at I work um, with uh, Nate and Emma at Cooperative Extension as our statewide wildlife specialist, and I get to wear a lot of different hats. And um, I guess my my overall philosophy is to um, do what we can to to make our land as uh, hospitable and as beneficial to uh, a wide variety of wildlife species. And what I I think we usually try to do is strike a balance between, you know, what people would like to would like to see and what they feel comfortable with having around their properties, especially around their homes, and to try to make their land um, attractive, um, meet multiple objectives for them so they can enjoy their land, but also to make that land as beneficial as possible for as many different wildlife species as we can, because there's lots of other um, wild wild animals that are enjoying our properties as well. And so we want to talk about birds today. Why exactly do birds need our help? Why is it worth talking for 45 minutes about gardening for birds? For, for me, the, the biggest reason is that, you know, we as humans, you know, we use the landscape, but in, in our process of of building our homes and roads and all of the infrastructure that we need, you know, to meet our needs as people, um, we really change the landscape around. And we really, in, in a lot of situations, we really convert the habitat in many instances to pretty inhospitable habitats. And we change it um, in a way that, you know, much of our especially developed landscape isn't really great habitat for wildlife species that used to call that exact same area home. And so I think, um, as um, really anybody who who has property, even if you just have a small little postage size yard, you have the opportunity to make decisions there about what plants you keep or add. And when we in the plants that we have and how we treat our soils, you know, influences the ability to provide cover and food um, such as fruits and insects um, that are our habitat for wildlife species that are just trying to make their way um, in the world. And so because we have made some pretty drastic changes to our landscape, I, th- I feel that we have a bit of a responsibility to do what we can do to to make that land that we call home um, as, as suitable as possible for, for different species, including birds. Matt, we know that different birds have different needs and utilize different habitats. Can you parse out whether there are any particular groupings of birds that are doing particularly well or particularly poorly, and why? When we say birds, there's a lot of different species that falls into that very general category. So um, as, a, as a general rule... Um, you know, there's been some some research that's come out um, in the past couple of years that shows dramatic population declines in a wide range of different forest and grassland and wetland associated bird species. And um, but within each of those each of those habitat categories, there are certain bird species that are actually increasing in populations. And as a general rule, I think what we see is that those bird species that are increasing are what we consider to be generalist species, species that are are pretty general in what they need for food or what they can use for food, pretty general in what they can use for cover. And what we see, see 
uh, the species that we see experiencing the greatest population declines are those species that we call habitat specialists that require a specific habitat type. So for example, what the group of one group of bird species that we really see declining in the Northeast are our grassland dependent birds. These are birds that require fields that are at least five to 10 acres in size or larger. Meadowlarks, for example, require fields that are over 30 acres in size. And here in New Hampshire, just in the last 10 to 15 years, um, it's become very difficult to even find um, meadowlarks. They occur in very, very few spots. And so as a general rule, I think what we see is that its loss of habitat is probably the primary factor um, driving population changes or increases in wildlife species. And then, then when we add, then there's all sorts of other factors that we add on top of that. For example, um, some birds are resident species, which means that they kind of hang out in the same area all year long. As a general rule, I think those species tend to be a little bit more stable in their populations. Where we see significant declines is in migrant species. So birds that might come here to breed in the, in the spring and summertime, but then they fly all the way down to like the tropics in the winter. And so these birds are experiencing all sorts of things um, in different areas of the globe, you know, in different seasons. And so habitat loss here in the Northeast affects their ability to breed. Habitat loss in the tropics affects their ability to survive the winter. And then they have to fly, you know, 1,500, 2,000 miles back and forth. And so they run into buildings, they strike, you know, they, it's a tough world, you know, for a, a little couple ounce bird, you know, traveling 4,000 miles a year to get back and forth to their habitat. So there's all sorts of things that can come into play. Putting up bird feeders is often the first thing that comes to mind to help birds, but given that we try and limit bird feeding to the wintertime, does that mean we're not necessarily helping all those migratory bird species? That might be actually where we start to get into today's topic, gardening for birds. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think when people, um, generally when they think about helping birds, they think about putting out bird feeders. And there, I don't think that there, I, I, feed my, I feed birds around my yard. I love to watch the birds at the bird feeder. So I don't personally have a problem with that. And, but again, as a general rule, the time of the year that the birds are going to, you know, perhaps benefit the most from that is going to be in, in the winter. And so, of course, if the birds are in the winter, those are birds that um, either are, re are residents or, or birds that call New Hampshire south. You know, we usually think of birds as flying south for the winter, um, but like right now, I have dark-eyed juncos and white-throated sparrows, you know, that are feeding around um, the ground behind, underneath my feeders. And those birds, we're south for those birds. They came to us after breeding way up north. So we can put out feeders in the winter, but we can do also all sorts of things in our gardens um, to benefit birds um, over any season of the year. There's lots of things that we can do to improve um, food availability and cover to breeding birds uh, during the spring and the summer. And there's all sorts of things that we can do in our garden um, to enhance uh, habitat opportunities for birds during the winter rather than just um, in addition to putting out feeders. Do you both have highlights of maybe a particular bird species that you've been thrilled to see on your property? I mean, many for sure, right? From my perspective, it kind of depends, though, for if we're talking about just the area around 
the house and the garden on my property. It's a, it's a different list of birds than the ones I've seen, you know, back in the, the wooded areas that I'm really excited about. But uh, near my house, actually, there's been a Carolina wren that has showed up and he's been hanging around throughout most of the year. And that's a bird that I didn't really see a lot of you know, a number of years ago, but I think maybe the the climate's been mild enough that he's sticking around uh, throughout most of the year, which is really fun. And actually, the same goes for eastern bluebirds. We didn't used to see them here really this time of year. Uh, But now, you know, I earlier today, I was watching a male and female bluebird flying around in the, the marsh area. Uh, just down from where the gardens are on my property. Uh, and that was that was great. So neither of those are super rare birds, but I still really enjoy seeing them and having them around. Love that. How about you, Matt? I have been called a bird nerd, uh, and I, I guess rightly so. You know, I, I kind of nerd out about birds, and I spend a lot of time looking at birds and studying birds. So, um, but uh, at the same point, one of the, a more exciting thing that I've seen around our very small, you know, 0.3 acre yard here in Gilmanton Ironworks was we had eight male cardinals in our um, in in one of our bushes yesterday. And again, this is a super common species, and um, you know, any I, I would say that any average, uh, even average or above. Um, average enthusiast birder probably would just overlook most cardinals because they're so common. But to see, you know, eight just stunningly bright red birds in in uh, in a shrub right by the house was just incredible. Um, yeah, we had some Carolina wrens singing uh, just a couple days ago too, and we tend to have a couple that hang around here all year. And um, I guess, but. But for me, the thing that I often find most interesting is, um, even though I have a very small yard, um, I really like the the, the migration period um, because during that time, there's all sorts of birds that show up that may not otherwise be here, and um, that's kind of where I find it's interesting to see how birds respond to what we do to the landscape. So in migration, especially, you know, these birds are they're traveling and they're burning energy constantly. And so most, many of our birds migrate at night and and during the day they drop into habitats where they can refuel with lots of food very quickly. And so um, we get all sorts of Northern warblers um, that don't breed in our yard um, stopping over during the migration. And um, I, I helped a Tennessee warbler out of our hoop house uh, last year. And again, that's a species that there's no reason why it should be in our yard except during the migration. So it's kind of neat to see that. Something that always comes up when we're talking about gardening for birds is using native plants, right? So every article you ever read is going to say you should have native plants in your landscape. And I I don't disagree with that. Um, But since you have background in this, Matt, I I just wanted to ask you what your perspective is on invasive plants that are in the landscape or or even just some of the non-natives that might be in a garden situation. You know, do they have some benefits to birds or, you know, maybe not so much? Um, Anybody who knows me knows I can chat like all day on that topic. So, you know, I'll, I'll just say right from the beginning, I, I'm a very strong advocate for native plants whenever possible. Um, so that said, I'll also say that, you know, the research shows pretty strongly that, you know, all plants have habitat value. Um, and again, I'll say that again, all plants have habitat value. And that includes some of our most invasive plants. So Japanese knotweed, for example, 
not ten, doesn't tend to be a great one for birds, but you know, at, time, at certain times of the year, it can be fantastic habitat for pollinators. You know, this is a plant that I've battled um, time and time again on my property, but it, there's times of the year where it's like the plant that supports all the pollinators. And so that's also true, you know, with regard to birds for many of these invasive plants. So my research has focused uh, on how invasive plants compare to native plants in providing habitat for songbirds, um, particularly birds that breed in shrubby habitats. And um, what we find is that the many of the invasive shrubs like autumn olive and multiflora rose, um, they, they're actually pretty good habitat. Um, and in some cases, they can be fantastic habitat because they grow very large and dense. And so they can provide really good nesting habitat for some of, for certain birds. Um, they also produce abundant fruits, um, which, again, some birds um, will prefer and will use those fruits and do just fine with those fruits. Certain, certain plants like multiflora rose also hold on to their fruits into the wintertime, which can further enhance their, their value, um, in a, especially in landscapes where there aren't native plants that are providing those fruits during the winter. And so um, it's really important to recognize that, yes, all of, all of these plants do have some, have some habitat value, um, and, and even the invasive plants can be really high-quality habitat. From a, from a bird perspective, there's two things that get attention with regard to how invasive plants function as habitat for birds. And probably the one that people are, are most familiar with is that many invasive plants don't support many caterpillars. And, and the reason for that is because all plants produce chemicals to keep things from eating them. And and uh, the cat caterpillars are very sensitive and selective about what plants that they can eat um, as host plants. And many of these native plants that have been introduced to New Hampshire and to the Northeast and to the United States, you know, they don't have any native relatives. And so they, those, these plants, when they're introduced, they come with chemicals that our insects aren't adapted to deal with. And so as a result, we see plants like um, autumn olive and, and uh, glossy buckthorn support very, very few cat caterpillars. So caterpillars just can't eat them. They can't survive on them. And so as a result, in the breeding season, many of our songbirds rely on caterpillars as a primary food that they feed their young. And so if a habitat is dominated by plants like glossy buckthorn and autumn olive, then um, caterpillar availability is very, very low. And so um, that makes that can make it difficult for certain birds, um, perhaps, to raise their young in those habitats. Another aspect of invasive plants is, again, they produce fruit, and uh, many folks might might have heard that. Oh well, you know, uh, these invasive plants they produce fruit that is is lower in nutritional quality than uh, than the fruit produced from native plants. And as a general uh, in general, that's incorrect. Um, all fruits have value. Certain fruits um, tend to be a little higher in fat um, than others, um, and that those fruits that are higher in fat are often very valuable, um, especially to migrating songbirds. Um, there's great research that's been done um, in Maine and um, in the Maine coast that has showed that migrating songbirds really prefer high-fat fruits that tend to be produced from native plants, primarily because those birds are adapted to eat insects most of the year, 
And then during migration, they change their physiology a bit to incorporate fruits into their diet because there aren't a lot of insects available. But there, but in the exact same habitats, there's all sorts of birds that are that can eat any of those fruits just fine. And so when we want to improve habitat for birds, the goal is to try to maintain a diversity of plants that produce a wide variety of fruits so we can meet the needs of these birds and the needs of these birds um, within the same habitat. Matt, does that mean that in some situations you might consider not removing an invasive plant? Yes, that's an easy answer to that question. Um, and so my, my recommendations uh, as, a, as a wildlife biologist is that before we remove any plants, we need to take a step back to really get a good, good handle for how the plants are actually functioning within a landscape. And so um, I visit many habitats um, today um, throughout New Hampshire, especially in, in the seacoast of New Hampshire, and especially in, in some areas of the Connecticut River Valley, where, where the habitats are absolutely dominated by non-native invasive plants. And Probably the main, the main reason for that is because of high deer densities. Um, in areas where deer uh, occur in very high densities, they, they, tend to, they tend to selectively browse the native plants and not browse the invasives. And that can create a situation where it's very difficult for many of our native plants to grow. And so as a result, over time, these habitats are dominated by non-natives. And so if we simply go into a habitat like that and remove all of those non-native plants, we've effectively removed all of the habitat. And it can be, and just because we remove those non-native plants doesn't mean that the natives will just jump right out of the ground. And so before we go in and re remove plants that are functioning as habitat by providing cover and food, it's important to realize you know, how are they functioning and if we're going to remove them, what can we do to immediately replace them with native plants that can function similarly so we don't reduce habitat quality. I think that's kind of been the approach on my own property, Matt. There's uh, oriental bittersweet and glossy buckthorn all up and down the road that I live on. Um, but I've kind of decided that my property, or at least my garden area, isn't going to have any of these invasives. So those are still right in the vicinity. Uh, but I've definitely made efforts here to remove invasives and then immediately replace them with seedling natives that are going to have a few more benefits and, you know, fully realizing through this process that this is this is going to be a battle, you know, and if I ever stop, the invasives probably will come back because the nature of having a, a garden area is that you do have disturbed soils and you do have a bunch of openings for light. And those are kind of perfect conditions for a lot of invasive plants to come in. But uh, yeah, so I I feel like that's that's the approach I've taken. Um, and is probably more realistic for a lot of gardeners to just have a small space that they're going to try to carve out to keep the invasives out, but not lose their minds over trying to manage every single invasive plant that's in the entire area. Yeah, it's really easy. In my experience, it's really easy to waste a lot of money um, in the process of trying to get rid of invasive plants. Um, because as you say, if, as soon as you stop, um, they often will come right back. And again, and, and, and for me, that's really landscape dependent. You know, if you're, if you are in a land, and so for me making the decision about how much time and effort do I spend to 
really try to like get rid of these plants. To answer that question, for me, I again take a big step back and look at the surrounding landscape. You know, if I'm in a landscape that is absolutely dominated by glossy buckthorn, the ability, the my ability to permanently eradicate glossy buckthorn from my property is pretty close to zero because even if I am successful in getting rid of it from my property, the next bird that flies over drops a seed out of its back end and the process starts over. You know, but that said, you know, anything that we can do to enhance diversity. And for me, that at the end of the day, that's really key. I want to try to maintain and enhance diversity. And whenever possible, what I'm trying to do and what I encourage folks to do is at least try to get the native plants dominant. You know, so more than ideally in our in our work with songbirds suggests that when the when the habitat is dominated by at least 50% native plants, um, that habitat is supporting the full suite of at least a shrubland bird species that we would expect in there. When the when the dominance is shifted and more than more about more than 55% of the shrub cover is non-natives, that's when we start to see at least from our research in New Hampshire, a decline in the in the variety of bird species. So again, trying to keep those native plants dominant and try to encourage a variety of different plant species that are producing different fruits during different times of the year. So identifying plants, native, non-native, and what benefits they provide is clearly a part of this. But what other considerations do you have when getting started? When I come onto a property and, and, are, and are trying to help a landowner make some decisions, the first thing I'm looking at is just the general habitat types. You know, am I, is this just a, like a suburban backyard in the middle of like, say, downtown Dover? You know, or am I like on the outskirts of Dover where, you know, the lots are a little bit larger, it's still a little kind of more wild, not quite so urban? You know, what are, and, and what, so what's the, you know, how developed is this landscape? Um, then I'm looking at what are the primary habitat types? So is this area predominantly forested? Is this area predominantly kind of more open and field-like or, or shrubby areas? Or is there, or are there a lot of wetlands in there? Because each of those major habitat components have different suites of bird species and different wildlife species that are associated with them. And again, we're working with it. That's kind of the, the surrounding backbone that we're working with. And then within any of those habitats, um, really, and, and this is where it comes down from a gardening perspective too, I'm looking at the structure of the habitat because birds respond to the structure or what the habitat looks like. And so we would think we can think about vegetation as occurring in different layers from the, the stuff that's on the ground. So the you know ground cover that includes the logs and the leaf litter. Then above that is the herbaceous layer, so that would be the grasses and the ferns, the shrub layer, which tends to be about like those uh, woody plants growing between about two to ten feet tall. So that's the shrubs and the young trees. Then there's a mid-story layer, which is the stuff, the, the trees that are between ten to fifteen feet or so tall, and then an overstory layer, which is the taller trees, thirty feet tall or taller. And so each one of those layers has a different group of bird species that spends the bulk of their time nesting and foraging in there. And so if we want to have a landscape that supports the greatest variety of, of birds, we should be thinking about, you know, what can we do to provide all of those layers somewhere on a property? Or 
what can we do to provide layers on our property that might be missing on our neighbor's property? Because again, um, many of us don't have a prop. Most of us don't have properties that allow any individual bird to meet all of their habitat needs. You know, most wildlife species, birds included, are using a number of properties, you know, to, to nest, to forage, to find, uh, to find mates. And so if we can manage our property in a manner that provides things that isn't available on other properties, food, cover, different vegetation layers, different vegetation types, trees, shrubs, deciduous trees, coniferous trees, you know, those sorts of, you know, to, to add that variety within that local landscape and across a variety of properties, that's, that's how we get to being able to support the greatest variety of wildlife and birds that are likely to occur within that yard and in that neighborhood. Emma, there are some real parallels I'm hearing between this concept of layering from a perspective of supporting wildlife and horticultural concepts you might use in garden and landscape design. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Nate. I mean, and they don't, I guess, really have to be different. It's just the way that we're thinking about them. Certainly height comes into play when we're designing landscapes. Typically, most people are putting in a garden or at least having that perennial there where you have, you know, plants that may be less than a foot to maybe four feet tall. Typically at the back of a, a garden border, you're going to have some shrubs. And most people end up putting at least one or two shade trees into their landscape because if you have a sizable yard, you're probably going to want that uh, throughout the season. So absolutely, you know, it is kind of one and the same. And at least from my perspective, when it comes to garden design, I often think the most attractive landscapes are the ones that kind of mimic nature. So that means that things are planted in layers, that plants are put in groupings. So rather than just going to the garden center and buying one of everything, you perhaps buy three or four or five of one particular perennial and plant those all together in your landscape. Or you buy, you know, two or three at least of the same shrub and put those in. Um, I mean, I, I think that probably helps serve, it definitely helps serve pollinators better. I'm assuming it helps serve wildlife better. And it's also just going to make your landscape a lot more attractive from an ornamental perspective. Yeah. And I like, I, I agree, you know, anytime that we can use nature as a, as the guide for how we're working with our, the landscapes around our home, you know, I think that's the best approach if we want to try to, you know, attract and, and provide the greatest benefit to wildlife. And I'll just echo like the idea of, you know, so for example, you know, maybe you want a winterberry holly for in your, in your backyard, you know, to so have those bright red fruits in the, you know, this time of year, which is the, the early winter, <clears throat> you know, those are great fruits for, for, for birds, um, especially and, and small mammals, um, you know, at a time of year where there isn't a whole lot of other fruits available and, I have a winterberry. I actually just have one winterberry holly in the back of my yard. And it was, there's lots of fruits there, but a flock of robins moved in and like two days later, all the fruits are gone. So it was great for that day. But you know, that for me, that was just a very, and I knew that too, but it was just a take home message. Like, okay, that that's not enough. I need to add more in there to be able to really make a difference if I want to provide a food benefit to these species. question I've gotten from many gardeners is which landscape plants are best for hummingbirds? Well, 
Hummingbirds tend to prefer bright red, orange, or pink flowers, particularly those that have a tubular shape, though they will forage on nectar from a wide variety of different colored and shaped blooms. A few native plants that are hummingbird favorites include wild columbine, orange jewelweed, cardinal flower, bee balm, and trumpet honeysuckle. Most sages, aka salvias, are also hummingbird magnets. Also, maintaining small deciduous trees and shrubs in your yard is important to give hummingbirds places to nest, perch, and rest. So from a food perspective, we know that there are some birds that go after nuts and seeds and fruits, uh, some that even go after nectar. And of course, uh, many birds use a combination of these different food sources. So with that in mind, how do you start to go about assessing what you have and, and thinking about what you need to add? Even if you don't know how to identify plant species, beginning beginning with at least being able to identify the different layers, you know, do I have that overstory tree layer somewhere? Do I have things that are, do I have tall shrubs? Do I have short shrubs? Do I have plants that flower in the spring and maybe flower in the fall? Those sorts of things can start to get you towards that diversity. But, um, to get really serious about it, I think that the more that you can understand about different plant species, the more effective that you can be and strategic that you can be. Each plant species that's out there has different growing conditions. It, it likes a certain type of soil and a certain type of sun. You know, some grow really well in the wet. Some grow really, you know, are only going to grow in dry conditions. And so plants that are growing in those in the right conditions are going to be the healthiest and they're going to produce they're going to produce foliage that supports a greater variety in abundance of insects, and they're going to have the energy that they need to produce good fruits. And so the only way that you can really know that is to kind of know the plant species and know what they need. And, and that can be kind of nuanced. Um, but, but having that information, you know, under your belt can allow you to pack a ton of plants into a very small area by making good decisions like, okay, this plant needs the dry spot over there that gets the first sun of the day and stays sunny all day. All right, this winterberry holly isn't going to grow very well on that dry spot. It needs to go in this in this wet low corner of my property and and it can grow fine you know under a very tall shrub you know that doesn't cast shade directly on it so you know so having some of that background and experience can can be very very helpful to be for being strategic about how to locate plants and to and to really maximize that diversity especially if you have a very small lot and you're trying to um, maximize you know the space that you have available Emma, a lot of times we talk to folks who are maybe planting backyard fruits for themselves and have a complicated relationship with the birds and other animals that have some of the same taste, right? Literally everyone and everything likes blueberries. But there's also uh, plants that we're not even growing for ourselves, but appreciate the features. Winterberry, for example, provides brilliant color that that we really like what are your thoughts on how to plan 
in advance and with the knowledge that there are going to be some of these conflicts and you want to provide a lot for birds and other animals, but also keep some visual interest and maybe even food for yourself? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And it's a tough thing. And I think it's something that a lot of gardeners end up dealing with. Whoever grows blueberries, you know, is surely run into issues with with birds seemingly getting to all their blueberries before they get out there. Uh, and this is this kind of goes back to what the story Matt was talking about with his winterberry holly. If you only have a couple of blueberry bushes on your property, it's going to be really hard for you to beat the birds to them or the chipmunks or, or whatever wildlife you have uh, on your land. If that's if that's all you have, unless you are excluding animals from that planting. So a lot of times with berry bushes, for example, people will put up netting to keep at least birds off of their bushes. Um, But of course, you know, if you really want to support birds on your property, then maybe you're just netting a few of your blueberries. But then you have some that are in another area that you just, you know, leave out there. First come, first serve for those those particular plants. And I, I think that's, you know, something that gardeners are always going to have to contend with. At least I hope so. That there's going to be wildlife that are really interested in the plants that you have in your garden. And you have to decide how much loss you're willing to tolerate. And I think that kind of comes into play with ornamentals, too. So when you have a garden that you just have for its beauty primarily, but you also want it to be supporting pollinators or or birds or small mammals, you kind of have to decide or, or at least make the shift to letting some of these plants have some damage, some missing leaf parts, some missing fruit, maybe even some missing flowers, and just be okay with that, right? It's when we want everything to be absolutely perfect that we really come into conflict with uh, wildlife in our gardens. And it's tough, right? I I think it's it's always disappointing if you have a a particular plant that you were really excited about and all of a sudden half of its foliage is gone. Uh, But, you know, ultimately that's a very good thing. So I'm always telling people when they see caterpillars Let's, for example, um, actually, I, I just planted some uh, alternate leaf dogwood on my property this past year, and I, I never found the insect that did it, but probably about half the foliage disappeared on those plants, and it was okay, right? I decided that that was fine. It was a little distressing, and we get calls about that sort of thing at extension um, when clearly some sort of animal or insect is feeding on a plant. But for the most part, if a plant is pretty happy and established, it's going to be totally fine. I think for most of us at Garden, as long as we're getting, you know, enough, we're okay with sharing a little bit. So with the, the blueberries, for example, I'm, I'm fine with sharing some as long as I get some. I would just add there, too, that, you know, my, I had that exact experience with the blueberries. I put blueberries in this year, and, you know, they were the—, the uh, I went ahead and let them just flower and do their thing, which I probably shouldn't have. But anyway, they were full of blueberries and they were full of blueberries one day. And then the next day I went out and there was no blueberries there at all. And I'm pretty sure it was the robins that got them. And I was a little discouraged about that. But then as then I you, I kind of I had to immediately put it into perspective that, OK, I'm 
I'm gardening here prime in my yard. I'm gardening primarily for wildlife. And, and so that's, you know, that's what happened. You know, I provided a, a great food source and the wildlife responded to that. And, and again, I think it's very important to put it into perspective. Okay. I, maybe I didn't get those blueberries off of my shrubs, but guess what? I can drive to Hannaford's and get blueberries. Like I'm not relying on this to survive. You know, these critters that are out and about in our yards, that's their, that's where they go for food. And without that food, they may not survive or they may not be able to produce their young. So, you know, the, the loss of a few blueberries to me, it's really no skin off of my back, you know, ultimately, whereas, um, you know, it's a, it was, I probably provided a great benefit, I hope, uh, to those, to those birds. Something I think that's worth talking about too, probably is nesting habitat for birds on our properties. I'm thinking that you know, trees and shrubs or maybe some plants on our property are going to be good nesting habitat for some birds, but having a few birdhouses around probably isn't going to help or is probably going to help too. Uh, any tips you have for home gardeners in terms of, you know, creating nest nesting habitat? And if you are putting up birdhouses, you know, thoughts on how to do that in a way that birds are actually going to use them? Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> Um, again, when it comes to nesting, those vegetation layers are really critical. So that's where, so birds um, have evolved to use different areas of, a, of the habitat, different heights of a habitat, especially to avoid directly competing with one another. And so we have some birds like say scarlet tanagers and red-eyed vireos uh, that tend to nest pretty high um, in some of the trees um, around our, our home. So if, if, we, if we don't have tall overstory trees, it's unlikely that we'll have those birds nesting. Other birds are, are tending to nest um, in the shrub layer. So most common around our homes, that w birds that would nest in the shrub layer would be um, uh, northern cardinals and gray catbirds, for example. And um, so again, if, if your lawn or, your, or rather your yard is lacking uh, dense shrubs, you're very unlikely to have those birds nesting on your yard. And so layering very, very much comes into play when we want to provide nesting cover. And again, I, I stress cover. You know, so one one shrub out in the middle of a wide open lawn isn't very good nesting cover. Um, even if a bird did decide to put a nest in there, that nest would probably get eaten by predators. You know, because any predator that came along would be like, oh, well, that's something different. Let me go check that out. And yep, here's a nest. And so when we want to provide cover in those layers, it's really important to make those layers dense. So rather than just one tree, a cluster of trees, you know, rather than just one dense shrub, you know, a number of dense shrubs that allows a bird to, to hide a nest deep in that cover so they can avoid predators and, and succeed um, in raising young. And so we can add bird boxes, absolutely. And, and so, but it's important to realize that the, the, the birds that are nesting in bird boxes are birds that would naturally nest in tree cavities. So, you know, that northern cardinal, if there's no shrubs out there, it's not going to nest in a bird box. That's not, it's not evolved to know that, oh, I need to climb inside a tree to make a nest or to climb inside a box to make a nest. So birds that would, that are most commonly going to use boxes include in, in more open habitats would be our bluebirds and tree swallows um, in, in more 
kind of enclosed yards might be chickadees and titmice. Um, often house sparrows are very common. Um, and sometimes our woodpeckers will. And so a time, the, the, a yard that is most likely to provide a benefit by adding boxes is a yard where there isn't natural cavities available. Birds like chickadees, for example, can nest in trees that are only about as big around as your coffee mug, you know, because they're small birds and they can fit into holes in very small trees. But if you want pileated woodpeckers, you need to have some pretty big trees, trees that are probably about as big around as you are, you know, that have holes in them. And so um, we can make some assessments for do we have these natural cavities and cavity trees available? And if not, we might want to add, you know, add some boxes, you know, to benefit certain species. Each bird species has kind of its preference or requirements for how big of a box does it need and how big of an opening to that box does it prefer and where should that box be located to um, best benefit that species that you're hoping to benefit. Um, I'll direct people's attention to a publication called Woodworking for Wildlife, which um, I think is still available. I have some uh, old copies of it in my office, and uh, it's just a fantastic book that has detailed it has detailed plans for how to construct um, boxes of specific sizes, and good examples of uh, or recommendations for where boxes should be located. But most of that information is available online. Yeah, I know it's really important to think about where you're placing your boxes, um, how tall uh, you're mounting them, um, and that it is really species specific. But Matt, when you're thinking about what species you want to support with bird boxes, potentially, should you be selecting species that are already present on your property? Or is, is there some possibility of, you know, maybe you've never seen a bluebird on your property, but you really want to, so you're going to put up bluebird boxes and do you need to do anything to manage competition for those birds or predators i know bluebirds have some pretty stiff competition i think we can do both so for example chickadees are pretty common they're all over the place you know but that's fine that's great to be able to provide habitat for a common species you know chickadees we might see foraging in our garden so they might chickadees eat chickadees are pretty general in what they eat they eat acorns, they eat beech nuts, they eat seeds that are on the ground, they eat insects, they eat fruit. And so it's not uncommon to see chickadees like foraging through our fruit producing trees for, you know, this time of the year in the, in the winter, you know, for fruits or coming into our garden to forage on insects. Um, those chickadees might be coming from your neighbor's yard or somewhere nearby. And if in, and they might have a spot to nest, but that's a species that requires a relatively small box they're not really territorial. And so adding some boxes in your yard might actually increase the number of chickadees, you know, that you would see in and around your yard because you provide them with a habitat component, a cavity to nest in that might not otherwise be available. Um, certain birds are often very much limited by the availability of nesting cavities. And, and bluebirds are a great example of that, bluebirds and tree swallows. And so it's not uncommon for me to go into a into a land into a landscape where somebody has a big wide open yard or they or their yard is adjacent to a big wide open field and they aren't seeing any bluebirds and in that situation probably the main reason for that is that there aren't any nesting cavities nearby and it's not uncommon in that situation that when we add a nesting box or two 
those birds like immediately show up. So they're in and around that area, probably kind of scouting it out, but we don't see them frequenting that area because there isn't that nesting box that kind of serves as the central location of a territory. And so it can be the addition of a box can pull in birds like bluebirds and in tree swallows that wouldn't otherwise, you know, we wouldn't otherwise see there. And yes, there is competition. So the bluebirds and the in the bluebirds, uh, tree swallows do compete. They also compete with house sparrows. And uh, again, there is ways to usually pair boxes, put two boxes together um, that to actually encourage us tree swallows and bluebirds to nest together because both are territorial. And so, uh, and they'll compete for one another for, for the same box. But when we put two boxes together, um, only one pair of tree swallows is going to tolerate a tree, let a tree swallow around, but they're fine if if the bluebirds are a neighbor. And so uh, there's some strategies that we might be able to use, you know, to uh, to accommodate a number of different species in a relatively small area. That's a really cool strategy. Corollary to bird boxes are bird feeders. And earlier you touched on the fact that you know personally you're you like using bird feeders, you're fine with it, but that kind of hints at the fact that they are somewhat controversial and that other people in your field may have slightly different takes on on the bird feeder topic. Um, And we get a lot of questions about bird feeders and organizations like Audubon get so, so many questions about bird feeders, everything from what's the best type of feeder to what food should I be using and where should I put it? Um, But Maybe we can just talk a little bit about the the role of bird feeders, positive and potential negative consequences that can come from using bird feeders, um, and can you mitigate any of those potential negative consequences? Sure, I think the I think the biggest potential negative that we are concerned with, especially up here in in New Hampshire, is is bears. You know, so when we put out when we put out food. Um, anything that eats that food is going to come to it. And that's cute when they're little chickadees and cardinals and nuthatches. It may not be so cute if it's a big bear um, that, you know, is coming in very close proximity to people's homes. And so I think as a general rule, what we what we typically recommend is to only put out bird feeders in the wintertime, you know, after, you know, bears are, you know, into hibernation. And that's becoming a little bit of a challenge because right now here it is, you know, we're talking on December 7th and it's um, 45 degrees out at my house or even maybe a little bit warmer today. And there's no reason why bears shouldn't be out. So I actually have my feeders out, but I'm, I monitor them regularly. I have a little fence around my yard, which tends to keep, which tends to discourage the bears from coming in. But if a bear were to show up and take one one of my feeders down absolutely i would pull my feeders in probably for a couple of weeks until it got a little bit colder because we don't want to encourage bears you know some people don't mind seeing bears but your neighbors might not like seeing bears at all and you know what we often say is a, a fed bear is a dead bear which means that eventually that bear is going to go into somebody's property who doesn't want a bear there and if it if that bear is getting used to being fed, 
they can get into people's houses and they can cause damage. And ultimately, it doesn't end up well for that bear. So that's the biggest thing I think we tend to be concerned about with feeders. That said, there are times of the year where, you know, anytime that we put out a concentrated food source and we have multiple animals coming to that same food source, that's a great opportunity to spread diseases. And so we do occasionally see situations where, um, Big flocks of, I think most commonly of uh, house finches, um, can contract conjunctivitis, you know, at feeders in late winter. And so there are situ- there are times and situations where we would want to pull our feeders in. So anytime that we see any sort of birds that are looking sick or ill, or they just don't look right. That's a great time to you know get to just pull those feeders in, so we don't ha- we aren't creating an opportunity for birds to come in very close proximity to one another and feed out of that same feed source and spread and spread diseases. And is there anything to cleaning your bird feeders? I know that you need to clean bird baths. Yeah, I I usually I think it's a great idea. I have I actually have bird baths that I keep out all year. I have a heated bird bath and um, I usually try to change the water. I usually regularly try to change the water every few days or any time that there's that I can see bird poop in them. Because again, you know, if, if animals are defecating in that water and the next animal comes to drink it, anything that that first bird has, you know, then those other animals have the potential to contract. And so I think it is our responsibility to keep those clean. And the same thing with the feeders. Um, certain feeders, you know, I think anybody that is feeding um, like hummingbirds knows that it's really important to keep those hummingbird feeders clean because, you know, that sweet nectar in the sun has a potential to form mold or, or maybe even ferment, you know, and that little that little uh, hummingbird that comes in doesn't have to ingest too much, you know, fermented uh, juice or to mold to get really sick. And so those those feeders need to be cleaned regularly. I find in my tube feeders, I always, I, every time I feed them, I just keep an eye on them. And anytime I see seed that's maybe gotten a little wet and starts to get a little moldy or starts to cake together, I just tap it all out and try to clean it out in, um, to, to keep them clean. Yep. You mentioned that water source too, Matt, and that's something we hadn't really touched on yet. But you said you keep a, a bird bath with a heater in it uh, all winter long. I do. Yeah. I actually started doing that last year. And, um, and boy, I mean, every, almost every time I look out, so so I have my, I have my, uh, the bird bath out where I can see it, you know, right out of my uh, slider in my kitchen. And, uh, it's near, it's near a couple of my feeders, but away, but far enough away from my feeders that the seed isn't, you know, the birds aren't perching on the, on the feeders and kicking seed into the, into the water or pooping into the water where they're perching above it. And, um, Boy, I mean, almost every time I look out there, there's birds that are on that feeder and that are drinking. You know, I don't, sometimes I'll see the bird, like on a warm day, they might be in it and actually using it as a bath. But um, uh, blue jays and chickadees and even gray squirrels um, are are pretty f- frequent visitors of that um, bird bath to use it as a water source during the wintertime. And I'm assuming all year round, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to hurt to improve habitat on your property by having some sort of water source available. 
I agree. Anytime, and again, it's, um, you know, our wildlife get water from all sorts of different sources. But if you, you know, I don't have a whole lot of open water on my property. And so um, it's, it's has been amazing to me, like, you know, the, the day that I put out my bird bath, like within hours, there were birds in it, you know, in the middle of the, in the, in the summertime. And then even in the winter, you know, is that, that first day I put out that water, it was like they, the critters, they found it and they, they regularly use it. So I think, it, you know, having that water source available is a, is a great addition, um, you know, to your landscape if you don't have it. And there's all sorts of ways that you can add water. For me, the bird baths were just efficient and cheap and it was easy to do. But you can, you know, you know more about it than me about designing water features and whatnot. You can make them pretty, pretty elaborate and in the, kind of real showpiece to your landscape if you want to. And if you design them correctly, you can make it so the, you know, the water is bubbling or moving and, you know, stays, you know, at least part of it stays unfrozen during the wintertime and is, you know, critters have access to it. Well, and the ornamental pond that's on my property is always hosting all sorts of amphibians. You know, some years we've even ended up with tadpoles in it. And this is not a natural pond, you know, it's a, it's a rubber lined pond, but it's, still supporting a bunch of wildlife, and it's really beautiful. Emma, I, w- I hope you can chime in here and cutting those seed heads in the fall on perennials. Oh, totally. I always figured the more you can leave, the better. So any plants, from my perspective, that have a seed head on them in the fall or, or late summer, go ahead and leave those until the spring. Because many of these plants, whether it's sunflowers or asters or or cone flowers, these are potentially providing good foraging habitat for birds or for small mammals. And in some cases, they can be really beautiful too. Uh, I think a lot of times winter weeds are really gorgeous and are, you know, a nice part of the landscape. If you are going to do that, you know, leave some things standing. Uh, It is okay to cut them back in the spring, though. I think sometimes that's a concern. You know, if I don't cut it now, like, am I not ever allowed to cut it? And it's it's okay to cut those stalks down in the spring. Um, Sure, if you left them entirely alone, it's possible that maybe a a pollinator might be able to use some hollow um, stalks or something to use for nesting habitat. But, you know, it's it's not an all or nothing approach necessarily. And just because you're leaving some seed heads in the fall doesn't mean that you don't clean up your garden at all. There are plenty of plants that most people have in their landscapes that really aren't going to provide much benefit over the winter. Let's say, you know, hostas or daylilies, you know, plants that Provide some benefits when they're in in bloom, but once that foliage starts to die back, there's there's really nothing that it's helping out, you know, outside of maybe creating some some shelter. So I'm fine with cleaning up some stuff, leaving some other things, and uh, you know, just setting yourself up for at least accepting that there's always going to be some spring cleanup too. People often are in a position where they're not sure what to do with bird nests. Uh, sometimes that might mean nests that are around the house and, you know, it doesn't look like they're being occupied. Can I actually take that down? Um, people who are maybe needing to cut down a tree or do some severe pruning, wanting to make sure they're not potentially impacting nests that may or may not, uh, be in those trees. Um, and then, well, 
I, I won't do that thing where I pile on questions. So let me stop there. <laughs> no, it's good. I like I like it. I just have to remember what all the questions were. So, so yeah, great questions about Nest. So you know, most of the so when we're talking about Nest, we're probably talking about like a tip what we would call a cup nest. So that typical nest that looks like a a cup that's woven out of sticks or grasses. So. Um, Almost all of the birds that are making those those cup nests are nesting from, you know, uh, in the springtime through late summer. And so once wintertime comes around, those nests really aren't being used. They're certainly not being used for raising young. And so outside, and, and, and while there are some exceptions, like robins, for example, or phoebes, might come back to that same nest or rebuild a nest on top of an existing one, you know, that's on your deck or over over your doorway, most birds, as a general rule, aren't reusing their nests. And so if you're seeing nests in the wintertime, um, you know, songbird nest, it's, you know, generally it's going to be fine for you to, to uh, move that nest around, you know, or cut that tree down if you, if you need to. You know, where, where I think we are most likely to run into some conflicts or to cause some potential damage is if we're, if we're doing a lot of that tree cutting and brush cutting, like right in the middle of the nesting season, where it really, where it does matter, like that bird, that nest is actually occupied. And so um, if there's nests, if there's eggs in a nest, then that's a, that's a time of the, of the nesting season that those birds are really sensitive to disturbance. Um, if we are frequenting that area or we disturb that nest, um, mom may very likely abandon that. Um, if there's nestlings in the, in the nest that we find, you know, most nestlings are only in a nest for about 10 days. And so knowing that can be very valuable. So if you come to a nest and you find that there's nestlings in it or you find that there's eggs in it, if you can wait to remove that nest until the nestlings fledge, then you can safely go ahead and, and, and remove that nest um, if it's something that you need to without causing a lot of damage. If it's early enough in the year, you know, after the nest is fledged, you know, mom might create an, another nest somewhere else, um, you know, for later on in the season. So I'll just add too about baby birds. That's a question that I get a lot of. That's probably something I get more questions. Hey, I found a baby bird. It fell out of the nest. That was literally well, the question I was going to tack <laughs> on. So I'm, I'm, see I'm glad you just. I got can see there the energy coming yeah. from you about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So, so as a general, so um, birds rarely fall out of the nest, and so, um, like I say, um, when when eggs are laid. Um, most, as a general rule, most most eggs get incubated over about a 14-day period, and then the nestlings hatch, and then most of the nestlings are only in the, in the you know, the songbirds that I study in the shrublands, you know, within 10 days, they're out of the nest. And so the nest is a really dangerous place because especially as the young get bigger, they're making more noise, they're more active because they're all hungry, and they start, and there's more scent there. And so the nest is a very, especially when there's nestlings in there, it's very dangerous because when a predator comes, they can gobble up all of the nestlings within a brood at once. And so nestlings, birds have evolved to get out of the nest as fast as possible. And so the young hatch, 
the parents feed them, you know, in the nest for, like I say, you know, usually not more than about 10 or, or 12 days in one of those cup nests. And then the nestlings are evolved to leave. And so when we're finding nestlings on the ground, that's, they're almost always those like 14 day old birds that have made the decision to leave the nest. And the parents continue to feed those birds, usually for about two weeks or more. And so if we grab that nestling and bring it somewhere, mom's not going to be able to find it. And so the best thing to do if you find a nestling is to just keep walking. Don't break stride. That was what my ornithology professor, Dr. Art Borer said. What do you do when you find a nestling? Don't break stride. Just walk by it. But, you know, if you have cats or if you have animals, you know, that, you know, pets that, you know, might might grab that nestling, then you might take that bird and, and move it, move it into an area where it's a little bit denser cover, not so far away that mom can't hear it, you know, squawking or, or making its cheeps because she'll find that as long as you don't move it too far. And it's, it doesn't matter. She's not going to abandon it if you pick it up because she can't really smell you anyway. But don't take that nestling and move it too, too far away. Just just let it do its thing because it, it hasn't fallen out of the nest. It's just waiting for mom to come back to feed it. And so, and so one of the things that we can do in our landscaping to benefit those birds is to, again, make that, keep that ground cover kind of, kind of dense. You know, those, those birds, when they come out, they're like little chicken nuggets, you know, they can't quite fly and they're, you know, very, very easy for predators to get. And if they're on a, on a short grass lawn, something invariably will eat them. And so those birds really, those young birds really like to go into dense shrubby cover or to dense grass cover where they can get into that protection and until they're big enough to fly. So in, in kind of working towards wrapping up here, I want to get back to horticulture a little bit. What are some plants in your minds that don't get enough credit or adulation for the value they provide to birds? Maybe it's anecdotal or or maybe it's research based, but either way, like it, for for those who are listening who are really looking for specific plants they can, you know, they can order this winter or look for at their local nursery in the spring that are going to provide a surprising amount of value to birds. Something different that you don't current that that isn't available somewhere else, you know, something that adds to the diversity. Again, the key I think the key from for for providing um, benefit to the greatest variety of species is to provide diversity. And so, what makes sense on my lawn might not make any sense at all on your lawn because you have tons of it. And so, you know, have doing that assessment of getting a sense for what's growing around me and, and can I, if I'm going to purchase something, you know, if I have a, if I've got a, an apple orchard is, is in my, my neighborhood is, is my immediate neighbor, you know, adding an apple tree to my property probably isn't going to do a whole lot to one benefit wildlife in the neighborhood or attract species to my yard. The way that I benefit and I attract species is I provide something that they need that they can't get somewhere else. So again, that would be, can you provide a, a fruit during the winter time, you know, where it isn't available somewhere else? Or can you provide a, a host plant for certain caterpillars 
that not that isn't available somewhere else that again not only benefits those caterpillars and the butterflies but also provides an area where birds can forage in um, I'll, I'll turn this over to Emma because I suspect that she's has some great some much more concrete ideas than me but w I'll just say that one thing that we often we I think we rush to add and rush to get rid of things with the idea that we have to put things in. And so many of the native plants or the plants that just grow around our landscapes or, or function as ideal habitat. Oaks, for example, you know, oaks are oaks, you know, mature oak trees are common trees on so many of our landscapes, you know, throughout the Northeast and here in New Hampshire. Oaks support more caterpillars than probably any other species in our landscape. And so that's not only important for those caterpillars, but during the spring migration, they are absolutely loaded with songbirds. And so retaining those trees within the landscape can be one of the most important things that we would do over adding anything else that we might think about. Yeah, I guess... I'll just add, I mean, I, when it comes to gardening, even when we're talking about native plants, I think most gardeners are still looking for something that's a little bit unusual and not what they're seeing just in the woods around them. I, I, I could be totally off base in that, but I, I think that's often the case for gardeners is that we want something that's ornamental, that's unusual. I mean, that's certainly how we've ended up with all sorts of European and Asiatic species, right? Because we want this unusual showpiece in our landscape. But you can do that with native plants. And like Matt said, a lot of times there's going to be a native that you can have on your property that, you know, it is something different, right? And sometimes that means kind of stretching what native means too. So you could be growing something in your landscape that would probably really not be found let's say, as far north as where you are. So something that might be, you know, native in the mid-Atlantic, but not native, let's say, in New Hampshire. And that might provide, you know, a little bit more interest for you. Plants for me that if you have the right growing conditions, though, that I always like to see included in some capacity would include spice bush. So if you have room for a larger shrub and you have a nice moist soil in full sun or part shade, has gorgeous blooms early spring, really good fruits for birds, really nice fall color foliage-wise, and it's going to support spicebush swallowtail. So why wouldn't you want to have that plant around? For perennials, too, which we didn't talk about a whole lot, I am always trying to have something like wild columbine in my landscape which is awesome for hummingbirds. It's also great for a lot of pollinators. And you will find that in New Hampshire, but only in very select locations. So I found it a couple times, but it's certainly not something I'm going to find in the woods near my home. And if you need to put in a vine, I always have great luck with uh, trumpet honeysuckle, really in a variety of different settings. So I have it in a, a sandier spot, but if you have a really rich soil, it's going to be great too. And hummingbirds are going to come in for those tubular shaped flowers for sure. And those fruits might be attractive to some wildlife later on as well. Uh, majority of honeysuckles are introduced and invasive, but trumpet honeysuckle uh, is a species that you're not going to find in New Hampshire, but this is one of those species that's native to eastern North America. So if you're going to take a road trip, let's say down to, I don't know, let's say southern Jersey, you might have a chance of finding this plant. 
So those are some ones I'd consider. But there are lots of great plant lists out there for birds. I think New Hampshire, or Audubon, National Audubon Society has some great lists. So like Matt said, have some things that aren't already represented on your landscape and uh, try to have you know, fruits that are going to be across seasons, blooms that are going to be across seasons. And if those plants have some other ornamental characteristics, like good fall color, or interesting bark, all the better for your landscape. Thank you so much, Matt. We really appreciate you joining us today. I really enjoyed it. Oh my gosh, of course. That was fun. The 39th annual New Hampshire Farm, Forest, and Garden Expo. Tickets are available online now. And as a special thank you, all pre-purchased tickets will be entered into a special drawing for a family getaway at the inn at East Hill Farm in Troy, New Hampshire, valued at $1,200. You can find more details on our website, www.nhfarmandforestexpo.org. The New Hampshire Farm, Forest, and Garden Expo is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and provides education on all aspects of agriculture, forestry and gardening by bringing the state's farming, forestry, and gardening communities together to share ideas and views on industry needs, while providing a fun and interesting venue for the public to learn about these industries and their impact on life in New Hampshire. Exhibitors, workshop presenters, and sponsorship inquiries are welcome. All COVID protocols will be strictly followed and include capacity limits and increased buffer space between exhibitors. The New Hampshire Farm, Forest, and Garden Exposition founding sponsors are the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, the New Hampshire Division of Forests and Lands, and the New Hampshire Department of Agriculture, Markets, and Food. Additional event sponsors include Granite State Dairy Promotion, Leaf Farms, and Farm Credit East. We look forward to seeing you at the 39th Annual New Hampshire Farm, Forest, and Garden Expo on Friday and Saturday, February 4th and 5th, 2022, at the Doubletree Hotel, 700 Elm Street, Manchester, New Hampshire. For tickets and more information, visit us on the web at www.nhfarmandforestexpo.org. Emma, now that Matt's left us, is there a plant you want to feature for today's episode? A tree worthy of mention this episode is common hackberry, Celtis occidentalis. Common hackberry is a medium-sized deciduous tree that's native to New Hampshire and found throughout most of Central and Eastern North America. It's a member of the cannabis family, and it's highly adaptable, growing in a wide range of soil conditions, from wet to dry to even poor soils. It has great potential as a native urban street tree, though it's also suitable as a shade tree for the backyard or for rain gardens. Once established, common hackberry is very drought-tolerant, but it will also take temporarily flooded soils. Common hackberry is worthy of mention because it's considered an excellent tree for attracting birds. Over two dozen bird species eat the ripe black fruits, including cedar waxwings, yellow-bellied sapsuckers, eastern bluebirds, American robins, red-bellied woodpeckers, and wild turkeys. 
Hackberry is also an important larval host plant for a number of moths and butterflies, like morning cloaks and question marks. While hackberry isn't the most ornamental tree for the landscape, it's typically reliable. If you have room for a tree that will grow 40 to 60 feet tall and wide, order a hackberry from your favorite catalog nursery or ask for it at your local garden center. If you're on a budget, you'll likely find that purchasing young bare root trees and shrubs is more cost-effective than mature containerized or bald and burlap plants. Bare root woody plants tend to be just a year or two old and maybe just a foot or so in height. However, what they lack in stature is typically made up for in their rapid growth. Young bare root trees tend to have a higher percentage of roots than bald and burlap plants, and none of the structural defects of containerized plants like girdling roots, so they put on growth more quickly. The real trick to bare root plants, though, is getting them in the ground within a day or two after you receive them and giving them plenty of water during their first growing season. You may find, too, that the only way you can find certain native plants is in a bare root form from a catalog nursery. As we wrap up today's episode, I want to again thank UNH Extension State Wildlife Specialist Matt Tarr for coming on the podcast. Emma and I had the opportunity to also do a webinar with Matt a few weeks ago, and we always enjoy getting to work with Matt and everybody on our forestry and wildlife team. In the show notes, we'll include links to some select resources from Matt, as well as for the programs I plugged at the top of the episode. I hope you took away some ideas for how you can upgrade your outdoor space to better support birds. In fact, we'd love to hear what bird species you've been most excited to see in your yard and what you plan to do next to take your landscape to the next level for supporting birds. Let us know at gsg.pod at unh.edu. Until next time, incorporate the needs of birds into your spring garden planning and enjoy the sights and sounds of birds at your feeders. We'll talk with you again soon, Granite State Gardeners. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.